Well, good morning, everybody. By show of hands, anybody else enjoy the stampede yet this week? (laughs) A few of us. Uh, Our family has had fun. (laughs) It's been a good time and uh, fun to begin exploring uh, what's around in the culture and um, activities around here. I will tell you, I took a picture. I, I wish I had gotten it ready to post up here. Um, today, but took a picture of our parking lot yesterday from the top of the Ferris wheel while my daughter was trembling in fear because apparently she's really afraid of heights. Who knew? Um, But our parking lot was full. The other night, uh, my daughter commented, we were walking past and, and, and I just said, you know, hey, how awesome would it be if it was this full for church every Sunday? And she said, we wouldn't have enough seats, dad. That's right. We wouldn't have enough seats. How awesome would that be? I don't know what the future the Lord has for us as a church is, but I'll tell you one of the many prayers that I will be praying is that there is a Sunday morning where we come into church and the parking lot is that full. Amen? Amen. Have you ever noticed that the biblical language for discipleship is so often the same language that we use when we think about growth. Psalm 1-3 tells us that the man who delights in the law of God is like a tree planted by streams of water, producing fruit in its season. It is by nature growing. Psalm 23, one of the most well-known psalms, lands us in a place of peace as the growth-sustaining gifts are given by the wonderful and amazing Good Shepherd. Hebrews 5, starting in verse 12, tells us, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We read of maturity. Again, we find that the discipleship and being a disciple means to be growing. Jesus said, Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Much ink has been spent on trying to decide what it is that Jesus means here when he talks about receiving the kingdom of heaven as a child. A lot of that ink is wasted. Because the reality of what a child is, is growing. Right? It is someone who is growing in every single way. You can't meet a child who's not growing. This is why when it comes to our third core commitment here at Calvary, we want to talk about growing to know God deeply. And that's our third core commitment. We've been in a season or a series talking about our vision, our mission, and we've looked at Our other two core commitments, there's one next week as well. The first was to worship God passionately. The second 
is to connect with one another authentically. And the third, today, we're going to be talking about growing to know God deeply. And to do that, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Would love for you to turn there in your Bibles. There's a Bible in the pew if you don't have one. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. Now, during the sermon, we're going to be focusing on verses 17 through 21. But we want to read this in context and get the full picture, or at least the fullest picture we can in the time that we have. So starting first, or first Ephesians, verse 15, it says this, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and then above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills All in all. In verse 15, Paul starts talking about the reason. The reason. For this reason. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. When you read words like that, it's really important to look before and after. What is the reason that he's speaking? What is the reason that he's writing what he's writing? And if you go earlier in chapter 1 to verse 4... We start seeing, verse 4, because we have been chosen. Verse 5, because we have been predestined for adoption. Verse 7, because we have been forgiven through his blood. Verse 11, and given an inheritance. It is for this reason, verse 15, and he expounds on that. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. In other words, he he takes their identity, and we've been talking about identity, and who we are in Christ, and then he lands it in the fact, the verifiable fact, in his opinion, that those he's writing to are Christians, and he knows it. He has a confidence in them as believers in Jesus. Now, some of us might be saying, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I don't have confidence in me being a Christian. How could Paul possibly have a confidence that somebody else is a Christian? Well, he tells us right here because he sees it. He sees in their lives. He sees in their faith. Particularly, he sees in their growth that the Lord is doing something powerful in them. Now, let me tell you, I will, I'll just, let me just tell you this. This is sort of an aside. But if you are someone in this room and you're struggling with whether or not you are a Christian or whether you can have confidence in being a Christian, come speak with me. 
Come check in with me today or let's get together for coffee this week or a meal or something because I got to tell you, you can have confidence in your salvation. We're told all over scripture that the very reason in 1 John that he's writing is so that you may know that you're saved. If you don't know that you're saved, then let's talk about it. Maybe you're not. And maybe today or this week is the week that you need to give your life to him and know for sure and certain that you are saved and you can begin to see him working. But Paul looks at his audience. He looks at the Ephesian Christians whom he loves and he says, I see it. I see it. I know that you are Christians. He is confident in them and who they are in Christ. I pray that we too would be confident in ourselves, but also in each other, in our church, and know that we're in him. Now that leads us to verse 17, the focus of our time today. Verse 17. He says, and this is a prayer, right? He says, starting in verse 16, I'll just read this. so We have the full sentence. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then verse 17, he tells us what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying that these people who are already Christian would be given over the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of him. What is he praying in simple terms? He's praying that they would grow. He's praying that they would grow in the Lord. And now he's got a bunch of things that he'd like for them to grow in. That's what we're going to spend our time on today. The first that we find in verse 18, it is having enlightened hearts. He wants them to grow in enlightened hearts. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's saying, I want the eyes of your heart to see God and his glory more and more. To enlighten is, is to enlighten, it's to shine, right? He wants the eyes to, to behold the light And he wants that to reflect out of the heart. Some of us have figured out in our long lives of faith, some of us are still trying to figure this out, that it is not, the Christian faith is not what we know here. Certainly what we know in our heads is part of it. But the reality is that if that head knowledge never moves to heart knowledge, we've missed the point. For some of us, if we're struggling in our salvation and to know that we're saved, it may be because you believe here, but not here. It's one thing to know God. It's another thing to know him, right? It is one thing to trust God. It is another thing to trust him. It is one thing to fear God, but it's another thing to fear God. Look at it this way been on a lot of adventures in my life. One of the adventures I've never had is going to the Grand Canyon. It is my understanding that at the Grand Canyon, there is a giant glass platform that juts out into the canyon. Anybody ever been on that? A few people? It is one thing to go there and know that it will hold you, right? You look out, you see people who are bigger than you, You see people who are more than you and you know intellectually that that thing is going to hold you, right? 
You know it, but you may never take a step out onto it. See, it's another thing to know it with your head and then with your heart begin to trust that this is going to go and to place your feet on that glass and look down. But let me tell you, there's one more step. See, it's one more thing to be able to stand there firm on that unshaking ground and marvel and wonder at how amazing and beautiful it is. Right? So we've got to move from our head to our heart to our lives. And if we never get past our head or we never get past our heart, then we're going to struggle. We're not just meant to have a heart or a head knowledge alone, but a heart knowledge that moves into our lives. Old Puritans, if you ever study the Old Puritans, uh, you would read about what they refer to as your affections. And that's what we're talking about here. Our affections, our, our heart's love for something. John Owen, one of the most famous of all the Puritans, he wrote a lot. One of the things he wrote is this, sin also carries on its war by entangling the affections and drawing them into an alliance against the mind. Grace may be enthroned in the mind, but if sin controls the affections, it has seized a fort from which it will continually assault the soul. We can know God, but if our heart affections aren't for him, then sin has taken root and it will ultimately rule and reign from the fort of our lives. Friends, Something has to control our affections. It's either going to be sin or it will be God. And we can know what has our affections by how we live and by what we find joy in. So the first thing that Paul, writing here, wants us to grow in is our heart knowledge, our affections for the Lord. The second thing that we see here, again in verse 18, continuing on, Having said, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, he says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The second thing Paul wants them and you and I in that to grow in is knowing hope. Is knowing hope. The hope to which he has called us. Now, hope in Christian mind is not some wishful thinking. Hope is what we set our firm foundation on. We know what he's done and we know what he is going to do. So we are able to live in hope of all the promises that he's made. I often think that someone's outward hope is a betrayer of their inward faith. What they fix their mind and their heart on for the future tells us right now where they stand and it tells you where you stand. How we walk through the trials of life in despair or with a hope, what we do when things seems lost, what we live for. All of this tells us what we have hope in or it tells us that we have no hope at all. The person who hoards all their resources declares where their true hope lies and it's not in Jesus. The person who spends all their time and energy on work is saying where their hope lies. The person who sacrifices those they love 
to other pleasures and joys is showing the world where their hope lies. Again, our hope comes down to our affections. What we hope in is rooted to what we love. And their question is, is do we love God or something else? Paul wants them, he wants us to grow in our hope. The next thing in verse 18 again we see is to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. He wants us to grow in the knowledge of our glorious inheritance. Look at this. I'm going to read all of verse 18 again just so we have it. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance. The inheritance. Because, and he outlined this at the beginning of chapter 1, we have been adopted into the family of God. We become as Christ is sons of God. And women, you can prefer to think of it as daughters of God. That's perfectly fine. As long as we don't miss the fact that when this was being written, only one family member inherited anything. And that was the firstborn son. What he's saying here is that you, because you're in Christ, have inherited a full share of the inheritance of God. Because we are rooted to the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. We don't share our inheritance with all the family members. We have it as singular one inheritance in the one who it's given to. The glorious full inheritance that we have. Later on in Ephesians, actually earlier in Ephesians, what we're actually told is that Christ becomes sin. And in that moment, we become his righteousness. What Christ has, we gain, and we give him what we are. This is deep, this is heavy, and this is theological. It should also bring us joy because we are a part of God's holy family. And this should change our affections, and it should change our hope. It should determine how we live. Are we going to live as children of God? As those who have inherited the full weight and measure of Christ? Or are we going to live as those who are defeated by sin? Or defeated by culture? Or defeated by any enemy that might come our way? See, if we're growing in the knowledge of our inheritance, then our hope which we have a hope in, right? We're growing in that because why our affections are growing in Christ. All this ties together. The next thing that we are encouraged to grow in, that Paul would challenge us, would be in knowing the power of God. Now, I I have news for you. If you're brand new to the Christian faith, you may not know this. You may know it anyway. God is powerful. Period. God is powerful. Okay? God is power. Verse 19. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Friends, God is powerful. 
He is more powerful than anything else we will ever see, encounter, or experience in this life or in all of existence. He spoke and the universe was born. His power is plainly known by everyone in the world. They may not admit it, but it's plainly known. Romans 1, 19-20 tells us, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is probably preaching to the choir for most of us. Because most of us have admitted the fact that we know that God created it all. We look at the mountains. And the reality is that something bigger and more powerful than the mountains must have made them. We look at the storms that roll across the the flatlands. And we know that God must be bigger. We look at the oceans and we know that God must be bigger. We look at the sun, which has the power to run the universe. And we know that God must be bigger. We look at us. We look at the complexity to which we have been made, knit together in our mother's womb, with each and every day of our lives being known and planned before the foundation of anything else I've spoken of. And the one that did that must be powerful. Amen? Now here's the thing. Paul in this passage is not speaking about God's power in general. He has two specific things in mind. Look at verse 20. And we see resurrection power. It says, His great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's power in this is the power to raise the dead. And let me tell you, if you are a believer here today, then you are someone who has been raised from the dead. You might never have died physically and then been raised to to death like Lazarus was or a couple of the other miracles that Jesus did or Jesus himself who died on the cross who was buried and rose three days later. But spiritually speaking, Ephesians 2, right after this passage, tells us that every one of us is dead in our sin. If you have been made alive in Christ, then you are alive. A resurrection has already taken place. You will hear me say this a lot. I will say it over and over again. There is no boring testimony in the kingdom of God. Somebody stands up and they say, well, I was raised in a Christian home and I never really sinned that much. And then I came to the Lord and now God has just been with me my whole life. And say, my story is boring. Really? You can tell a story that begins with somebody being raised from the dead and it's boring? Praise God that he saw you through those years and protected you from the, the depravity of your mind and heart before you had a chance to live it out. That's amazing. Never get down on your story because it's boring. It is a story of someone who is dead and has come alive again. The second thing in his power that we see and Paul lists here again in verse 20. He raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
Paul has in mind God's ruling power, Christ's ruling power, as he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God in the throne room of God. Christ sitting at the right hand, that is the hand of power. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 that he, Christ, is the one who holds the universe together in his power. In Colossians 1.17, we're told that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Part of the gospel, friends, is that Christ has ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God and he's holding all of this together for us. Wow. Not only that, but we're told in the book of Hebrews that what he's doing as he sits in that right hand of power is interceding for you and I. Like that's what Christ is spending eternity doing. Interceding for us in the seat of power because he is in control. And that is why we can have hope. And that is why our heart's affections can be for him. And that is why we need him to reign not just in our heads, but also in our hearts. All of this ties together. And here's the thing in our passage, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Friends, where is all the power of God aimed at? Toward us who believe. Just pause and reflect on that for a moment. The power that creates the universe, the power that raises from the dead, the power is still in control, is aimed where? At this sanctuary in Monta Vista, Colorado. And at your living room. And in your house. And in your community. It is aimed at all those believers who believe. All that power is aimed where? At us. The joy. Friends, the joy in this. And finally, because all of this has to tie together somewhere, we get to verses 21 through 23. We've read about his sovereign rule and his power and his control over everything, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul wants us, he wants you to know the victory of God. He wants you to live in the hope of the victory of God. Christ hasn't been defeated. And if we are in Christ, then you know who also hasn't been defeated? You. There is no power in this world, no culture, no government, no family member, no friend, no neighbor. There's nothing even in you that can steal the victory from you. Because it's not in you, it's in Christ who we live in. The victory that's found in the gospel. The victory that's found in the gospel. See, Paul's writing to Christians like you and I, who should know all of this already. And my prayer, my hope is today is that I'm not saying anything new unless you're brand new to the faith. 
My hope and my prayer is that what we're doing today is reminding because Christians never stop growing. There's always more. I heard a church once. I heard of a church once. They went to their pastor and they said, hey, look, pastor, we're all Christians here. You can stop preaching the gospel. We know it. We've heard it. Now, just so you know, that church is actually dead now. It doesn't exist. As makes a lot of sense. Because clearly what they had was a head knowledge that never reached their heart. Because if it did, they would know that their head knowledge wasn't complete. And there was always more to grow in. If we ever think that we know all there is to know about the gospel. And we ever decide we don't need to hear it again. It means that what we really need is to hear the gospel again. If you ever think you've arrived in the Christian life, it means that you are farther than you've ever been before. We worship a God who is infinite. That means that we will spend an infinite amount of time and energy to know that God. We often think, man, I'm going to get to eternity. What's going to be like? We're going to sing. That might get boring after a while. No. We are going to spend eternity learning about an infinite God that we will never know everything about in all of eternity. That's amazing. And you know what? We get to start doing that here and now. Friends, this to me is one of the greatest joys of being a Christian. It's one of the greatest joys to know that even though I know what I know, there's more to know tomorrow about God. And when our affections, when our hearts are rooted in him, that becomes exciting. I think about 20 plus years of being with my wife. Not married, we're married 19, right? Or almost 19. 18, I said almost 19, there we see, we're good. And I still think about those moments and there still are those moments when I learn something new about her and that's a great joy. Why? Because amongst my affections for the Lord is, is an affection for my wife. It's one of the things we, we love about our kids. I mean, we're raising up our kids. And every day they show us something new about them. It's like, where did this come from? I don't know where this came from. It's a joy to learn something new about those you love. And that never stays here. It always moves to our hearts. And the same thing is true of God. So let me just tell you, we should be a people who are growing. We should be a people who, who revel in knowing more and moving that from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge and what I would say into a finger and a feet knowledge. So let me ask you a few questions as we finish out our time. Number one, what have you learned recently about God? What have you learned recently about God? I mean, here's another question. How have you put your faith in Christ in a new way? Have you had a moment recently where you walked up to that glass bridge over the Grand Canyon and you moved from head to heart and took a step out onto it? Have you increased your trust 
in the Lord recently. I mean, some of us think we go back maybe 10, 20, 30 years. We're still resting on experiences from decades ago. But the God that we worship is new every morning. The mercies he gives us is new, are new every morning. Here's another question. What greater dependence do you have on Christ? Finally, one that I, I revel in. I pray you would have an answer to this. What new joy do you have? What new joy do you have in the Lord in the last day? The last week, the last month, the last year. For some of us, the answer is none. And I get that. I get that. Been in seasons where, where it's just been hard and, and devotion to the Lord has been difficult and challenging. But we worship a God who's infinite whose mercies are new every morning, who gives us his word that we can be in every single day. Let me just challenge you. There should be something new in your life. Maybe not daily, sometimes daily, but maybe not daily all the time, but weekly or at least monthly. That you're discovering new, some new knowledge that you're moving from your head to your heart into your life. So what do we do if there's not? What if we, we look back on the last day, week, month, year, decade, and we say, you know what? I really haven't grown very much. Where I was many years ago is where I am today. Where I, many months ago is where I am today. Well, number one, number one, you all are going to be really annoyed with me over the next however many decades I plan, we plan to be here together, okay? You'll be really annoyed because point application, number one, every single week is, anybody know? Prayer. Prayer. Okay, how do we do this? Well, number one, we pray. Paul himself in this passage is saying what? I looked at how great you all are, believers. I'm thankful for you, your love, your joy, everything. And then he says what? And I pray for you that you would have more. If you find yourself lacking in growth, whether you've been a Christian for a year, 10 years, or 80 years, the first step is prayer. We go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm not growing in you, or I don't feel like I am. Show me how, show me where, make this happen in me. Remember, we, we go to some of those Psalms that we look at. and what, He's the one that plants us by the stream of water that causes us to grow, right? We need to pray. We need to be a people who are praying. I believe in prayer. You need to believe in prayer. Prayer is the way that God works in our hearts, I think, the most. Second, second, we've prayed, we've turned to him. In that, we've already started growing because we've already started depending on him even for this. And so you've already kind of checked off a box or you've already kind of begun to move in that direction. We work at it. We work at it. Is there anything in your life that you learned without some level of work? Anything. I mean, think about school, you think about studying, you think about even things that come naturally to us. We had to actually sit down and listen to something, or even if it was pushing the play button on a YouTube video, right? We had to intentionally go do that to learn that thing. If you want to grow in the Lord, it takes work. 
We turn to him, we trust in him, and we meet that trust with some level of work, commitment, devotion, discipleship. And we engage. We engage the word of God. We engage with one another. We go looking for the answers to the questions that we have. So we pray and we work at it. The third thing that we do, and this really is where this kind of comes all the way back to being a core commitment here at Calvary, is that we need to turn to our community. We need our church community. We talked about this last week. Last week, core commitment, growing or connecting with one another authentically, right? We were not made to know God alone, nor were we made to discover God alone. I guarantee my experience and understanding of God is different than every other person in this room. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have similarities, because I know we do. It would be very difficult to have a pastor-congregation relationship if everything I believed about God was completely different from everything you all believed about God. We would have a lot of issues. But I know that my experience is different. I also know that the person sitting next to you's experience of God is different than yours. What happens is when the church comes together, we become one body. And that means I carry my experience of God, my understanding of God, my life of that in, and so do you. And together we build up the only way that we can come even close in this lifetime to truly understanding who God is. Guys, I'm too dumb to get it on my own. News for you, whether you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're too dumb to get it too. And it's by design. It's by design. We were made to do this together. So how do we do that? Well, three things that I want to land in. And this could have been part of last week's sermon. It's part of this week's sermon because these two, connecting with one another authentically and growing to know God deeply, are really tied together. The first thing we do is commit. We commit. We commit to one another. Now, we're not talking a lot about church membership now. We will be down the road. But we need to be a church that commits to each other, commits to gather together, commits to pray together, commits to spend time during the week together, right? Commitment is part of what it takes. Commitment. The second thing is confirmation. Okay, confirmation. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to have a confirmation class. Let me... Let me highlight. We have commitment and then we have confirmation. Confirmation is the process by which you and I encourage and build up, support one another. Where I look at Jeff and affirm that I see gifting in him and I see a growing relationship with the Lord. Or any one of us does that together. We confirm in one another and together that God is working and moving. This particularly comes out of our commitment to each other. The third step or stage is confrontation. Is confrontation. And that is where we challenge one another. That is where in natural community, in small groups or in Sunday school or when we're just together, we realize that, that we think or live differently than each other and maybe different than the word of God tells us to. And in those moments, we confront, challenge one another and say, hey, this is what the word says, but this is what I see. Tell you one of the best friends that I've had as an adult, 
came to me through confrontation first. When I met him, he was living in sin and proclaiming Jesus. I wrote him a letter. I said, hey, here's what the word of God says about your life and about what's going on. This, this doesn't work. Now, he didn't listen to me. He heard it. But it was three or four months before he showed up again, this time, admitting that everything in the letter was right and that he needed to be different. In that process, he became an incredibly, really good friend. So we bow out of this one sometimes because we're afraid of what it will do. But I will tell you, I don't think I've ever had a deep relationship with another believer that didn't at some point come from or get into a moment of challenge, a moment of confrontation where, where we had to say, wait a minute, what does this look like? See, God calls us to grow and, and that's hard. I mean, we all are familiar with growing pains, right? And a kid, especially when they're growing really fast, it hurts. The same thing is true of individual believers. If you've ever had a season as a believer where you were growing in the Lord really fast and he was kind of nailing you on one thing after another, one sin or one struggle or one weakness, every day it seemed like it was a new one. And every time you fixed something, you revealed something behind it that was actually worse. You know how much this hurts. The same thing is true as a church grows. There's slow growth. Praise the Lord for slow growth, where you do these things a little bit at a time, but there are also seasons of faster growth where it hurts because things change and, and challenges happen and, and new people are around. And what does that look like? And the question for us is, how are we going to grow through all of that? How are we going to grow through all of that? See, Paul's prayer here. And I just want to read this prayer again before I finish out. Because I think it's something we all need to be thinking about. Maybe even committing to one another. We're going to pray for this for each other and for our church as we move forward. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I pray that we would pray this for each other and we'd see what God would do as we grow together. Lord God, we do come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the goodness of the truth of the gospel and we thank you for the power that is aimed at us. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people that together would grow in you, Lord, that our affections and heart be changed by your truth and by the love you have for us. Lord God, I pray that we would work, work for your glory. God, in this place and together, 
as we would connect with one another authentically, as we would worship you passionately, Lord, and as we would grow to know you all the more deeply. God, we thank you and we praise you, Lord. Amen.